Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business presented by FL Montreal. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton today. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, any show that we get to talk about food is a good show for me, so I'm looking forward to speaking with Judith Fetzer of Cook It, another um, really great local business that's delivering fresh produce and and, um, and cooking supplies to, uh, to locals and part of an industry that's certainly taken off during the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, there's, there's, you know, like we've said many times before, you never want to let a good pandemic go to waste from a business perspective. So, you know, there's a lot of really good opportunities and good ideas that have come out. And, and I think the challenge is going to be for a lot of people. And this is one of the things we'll talk to Judith about is this, uh, you know, all of a sudden finding uh, a lot of competition. So if those of you that have read Blue Ocean, uh, Red Ocean, uh, at one point, this was a Blue Ocean environment, it's going to eventually go red. And how do you move back to blue? It is um, also important to maintain a good relationship with your bank, as we've see, said on the program many times, and we'll talk about that um, in the final segment with Patrick Sullivan, trustee at FL on uh, forbearance agreements and maintaining that link with your bank. So that's all on the way. But first, as usual, some news and notes. And uh, this piece from HBR on the year of working for home and what it's done to our relationships at work. And it also note, Mike, uh, on uh, on the remote, remote working trend that Google is actually pulling back a little bit in recent days. And they're signaling that uh, they're going to want their people back in the office, perhaps a little more often than uh, than some of us uh, thought earlier. Yeah, well, we've got we've been through this discussion probably about 12 times in the last 12 months in terms of in, out, partially in, partially out. Uh, you know, you go back to, uh, the, you know, the environment that we're living in, in, in terms of, you know, the flexibility, uh, you know, somebody said to me one day, you know, when you were a kid and you played hockey, did you, uh, when you played in your backyard versus going to the arena, did you play differently? Well, I think for a lot of people work is, is a similar environment. Uh, and I think the most important part really is the whole, the, the mental wellness component that's associated with it, the human interaction, uh, the small shot around the, the water cooler, uh, you know, the, the, all of those things that we take for granted when we come to work and many days consider to be a real pet peeve are actually part of our, uh, our shining and, and, and help our, our mental stability. What about in terms of just productivity? Um, it, does it vary between people, between offices, between industries, or do you, do you have a rule? Do you think that people are more productive at the office than they are at home? I do think they're more productive at the office. I think there are certain people that that shine in, in, in an environment like COVID, where they either get distracted or uh, have a lot of uh, a lot of different things, uh, you know, pulling at them. Whereas at home, they can focus more. Uh, some people have that ability. Other people need to have people sitting near them and working and have an interactive environment in order to shine. I, do I think overall productivity is down? Definitely. Uh, I, I don't think that it's necessarily great for the economy to have everybody sitting in their uh, their home office, uh, and, and it brings a lot of other challenges. I think getting people back to work, uh, I'm afraid for the first month, though, when everybody comes back to work, I'm not sure the productivity is going to be great once they come back and start socializing with one another. But yeah, eventually, I think what we're going to settle into is a hybrid environment. And speaking of socializing, um, this story, uh, also from HBR, about small talk and the importance of small talk, I would add for creativity especially, especially if you're in a creative endeavor, um, those water cooler breaks uh, are actually pretty important. 
Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of inspiration is, is happened in an off-the-cuff conversation as opposed to a contrived, forced uh, meeting environment on a Zoom video that, you know, you know, we want you to be creative at 10 o'clock when I call you on Zoom. You know, it, it, it's a whole different environment. And, and I think what we're going to continue to see is there's no opportunism. And, and I think that's the hard part. I think when you're working at home, you know, to say, hey, something comes to me, I think of it, I walk to the next person, I bounce it off you, we have a conversation. Now I have an idea, I got to set a meeting with you, I got to send you an email, I got to wait you for two hours to get back. So what we're getting is a, is, is a very uh, non-human creative environment by working remotely. One thing I want to talk about is uh, the technology Slack. Let's devote a minute to Slack because um, I have had interesting conversations with clients in some cases who have paid me a lot of money every month and I still refuse to use their Slack. Um, am I a jerk? Is Slack the future? Uh, is, this, is this the way to socialize? Because I just see it as a time waster. So I'm going to ask you to explain for our audience what Slack is, because I bet you there's a lot of people out there that don't know. Uh, it is a uh, work communication platform. Uh, you can assign tasks. You can chat with your coworkers. Is that pretty much a decent recap? Okay. So look, I mean, uh, yeah, is, is, is that environment something that uh, works? I mean, I think there's a lot of organizations that already have it in, in either some form of instant messaging or workflow, work production environments. Uh, you know, you're talking to an older school mentality here where, uh, you know, I still much prefer to have the conversation than to be posting uh, everything on a, on a social media site. So I, I think there's room for both. Uh, is it the future? I'm not even going to begin to guess what, what software is the future. I think it's also going to depend on what generations in charge. I mean, the reality of where we go with a lot of these conversations, if you look at the evolution of social media usage within our organizations, as we have gone from uh, the Gen Xers to uh, the uh, millennials, and now starting to see uh, the Zoomers creep in, uh, we're starting to see different, so, uh, different uh, software being used in different modes. So I don't think anything is for good for long anymore in the world we live in. In my business, I preach a very minimalist attitude towards social media, and I just see Slack as another social intra social, social media platform. And in that sense, uh, I just see hours burning when people are, are, are spending too much time on Slack. But that's just me. I know there are people in the background here who, uh, who are big Slack fans. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. Yeah, I mean, it can be used for collaboration. It can be used in a work environment as well. There's, there's no doubt that, that, you know, that's, it's like anything else, right? I mean, you can go back and say, well, the advent of the computer at one point uh, killed uh, our social interactions at the office. It's what you do with everything. It's not the fact that it exists and how it gets applied. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that want to argue with me on that, uh, that, that, that front, but I think it is, it's how things are applied and how they're, uh, how they're optimized and not abused. So lastly, just to wrap this topic up, I think it's important to strike a balance, right? You know, things I think we agree won't ever go back to the way they were. There always have to be some flexibility, some amount of remote work, especially for professionals. Um, what does the future look like? I mean, are we going to give people the option to stay home on Fridays uh, whenever they want, uh, X number of days per month, just like sick days? I, look, we're going to end up in a hybrid environment. There's no doubt. Like I said, some people flourish working from home. Some people need the social interaction. Uh, we are going to have to come to some kind of grips as to what that's going to look like. Uh, we back in uh, the Fuller back in uh, October, November, sat down with uh, the team leaders, non-partners, because, you know, all most of the partners are older, so they're not going to get that concept of remote work. But we sat down with 
the, the directors and the managers and the team leaders and said, come up with a, a work from home policy, um, but more on a hybrid model. We'd already had a work from home policy with certain restrictions that was, uh, you know, it w was, I guess, our first foray even before the pandemic shut down, uh, shut us down. Uh, I, I can't see, like you said, Google moving back. If you go back to IBM's days where they sent everybody home, I mean, the ongoing uh, analysis that was done on employees working from home from IBM was raising significant levels of uh, mental health issues, isolation and depression. So we have to find a way as, a, as an organization, but more importantly, as a society, as to how to be using that and have to be open and flexible in those environments. What does the, uh, on a related note, the downtown real estate landscape look like to you in the coming months? Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of, a lot of businesses, um, a, a lot of landlords giving away space downtown. Uh, are you seeing, are you still seeing that exodus? Well, I'm not sure I see an exodus because there's nobody downtown to see exiting. So it's, uh, you know, I look out my window from my office and it's a little, still a little discouraging when we're still pretty much shut down in, in, in most of the downtown core. So it's going to take time. I think people are going to downsize some of their space. I do not think that uh, we are ever going to be, uh, you know, completely working uh, without office space downtown. I think we'll be putting more people or more full-time equivalent people because that's the term really that we need to be looking at is the full-time equivalency into work workspace. Um, I don't think the downtown office space is going to go away. There's a glut uh, coming there as there is in anything else. Uh, you know, the question whether that glut was building prior to uh, the shutdown, I guess uh, the jury's still out on as well. There's only so much we can build and participate if we're not creating new business. Mm -hmm. So now we got to re we got to rejuvenate businesses. We've got to be able to get everything back open once you know once once we deal with the the health side of things. And there's got to be an encouragement and uh, and and there's there's going to have to be a continued incentive to uh, to to fill up office space. But I, I don't think office space is dead. If that's what you're asking me, it, it, it's certainly not going to be what it was two years ago. Uh, but it's not it's not a dead environment. We, we gave up our office probably about six years ago now. And I would say I never regret it up until recently. Like I think, I think now I'm starting to feel that lack of in-person collaboration amongst my teammates. And especially after this year where we can hang out at a coffee shop. Um, now I'm starting to reconsider. Yeah, and and I think that's what's happening. You 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 had the whole discussion of Google right at the beginning about Google wanting to see some of their people back. I think when the, when the pendulum goes too far one way, there's a natural reaction for it start to swing back, and that's where I say we have to find that hybrid environment that is it, that is socially and economically and mentally healthy for people. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't see uh, I, I can't see it going away, and we are going to need people are funny enough people are longing to come back to an office. Maybe not five days a week, but they're certainly longing to have some kind of uh, uh, permanent workspace out of their home. And speaking of work from home, you can get lots delivered these days, including all your meals. Judith Fetzer is the founder and president of Cook It. Welcome to today's entrepreneur, Judith. Thank you so much. I feel so privileged to be here today. Uh, so hi, Dan. Hi, Mike. Uh, and just for your uh, listeners, uh, I get to see uh, what it actually looks like to uh, build a radio show this morning. So I'm very excited about that. Well, we know you're a big fan of Slack, so <laughs> thanks for the feedback on that. Uh, so before we get into internal communications and just how exciting your business is in this uh, interesting time, what is Cook It? How would you define it for us? Well, Cook It was launched in 2014. We were uh, the first meal kit company that launched in Canada. 
so back then it was a very big innovation in the food segment, which had not innovated in many, many years. So our goal was to really bring uh, the customer at the center of the decision. So what do you want to eat? And then we'll do all the procurement. Uh, we'll do all the research and development with our culinary team, with our nutritionists and with our procurement team. And we'll deliver it right to your doorstep. So for those of you who don't know what is a meal kit company, um, meal kits are basically you order the recipes and then you have all the ingredients pre-portioned uh, with a recipe card and you, you only have to do the uh, the fun part of it. So the cooking and placing a meal on the table. Uh, but a lot has changed in cooking in the last couple of years. We've innovated, we've launched new products. So now we're as well a ready to eat meal company. And um, we also offer um, to some Quebec producers uh, the availability to uh, sell their products. So it's a platform Platform that is um, only for uh, for the producers of Quebec, and people can add some specialty products to their boxes that include breakfast options, dinner options, and things like that. So when I think you know com competition, I think you know HelloFresh. I think somewhere in those, but I have a funny feeling your competition is much deeper than that. I mean, I guess to a certain degree, you're you're competing with a grocery store. You're competing to with uh, uh, certainly during COVID, uh, an activity, a family activity. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, uh, we're competing in the food food segment, so we call it the share of stomach. <laughs> um, so we're competing against Uber, against. I actually see my competitors like Health Fresh and Good Food as. Um, enablers for us to move the dynamic of the market. Um, before the, when we launched Cookit, it was in 2014. And at that moment, um, there was less than 2% of the dollars spent online that were, um, that were spent online toward, uh, against 98%. Um, up until it took us five or six years, Metro launched big initiatives, uh, my, my competitors. So a lot of dollars were spent in that uh, industry. And uh, still, it was only five or 6% before the pandemic. And then the pandemic came and accelerated completely and changed the, 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 the way that consumers consume now. And that I think that dynamic changed forever. And the latest numbers that we've seen in Canada turn is more around 16, 22%, depending on the study of dollars that are spent online. Um, so it is a very competitive market. Absolutely. It's the highest um, expense of uh, families as well is in food. Uh, so that's why, but it's very, and the market here in Canada is still very less competitive than when you take a look and you look at the U.S. market, which is crazy competitive. Here we like, we're a couple of players and yeah. So let's, uh, let's take a step back and ask the ultimate question. Why? Why, <laughs> why start this business? What inspired you? What, what niche did you feel you were filling? Why did, why did you wake up one day and go, this is where we need to be? 
Well, uh, when I was younger, uh, at 15 years old, my mother sold everything she had in life and she became an entrepreneur and she uh, bought a campground. It was her passion. So uh, we moved to Kinner's Mills right next to Tedford Mines. Mm -hmm. And I helped her build that business every summer for three or four years, flipping burgers, taking care of the pool, um, selling candies to kids. So I kind of learned what was an entrepreneur back then. And then came back to Montreal, finished my studies, and I was working in the hotel and um, restaurant area and did my um, bachelor's degree in, um, in business. And at that point, I started to help many entrepreneurs launch their business. I was just curious that way and loved the new challenge. So I helped actually three different friends uh, open businesses, one in Ghana and uh, North Africa, uh, where I lived for like nine months and then um, e-commerce based company and um, brick and mortar based company in Chabanel. So that kind of is where is my entrepreneurship spirits come from. And then at one point, I was like, well, maybe it's not my avenue. Maybe I should get a more traditional job, work a nine to five. It's less stress. It's more stable. My mom, who had lived the entrepreneur journey, thought it was a great idea for me to have a job where I had the Saint-Zika and where I had the... Um, so, which is absolutely not my persona. And so that's the avenue that I took. And one day um, I got up and was completely depressed about my nine to five job, uh, completely depressed. And then um, kind of started on a frenzy of writing business plan and trying to find my own, I, my own million dollar idea. And but the one thing that was the same is that I was working like 24 seven, but when I was hungry, I had to stop everything and had to search the web for like one hour, two hours to find exactly what I wanted because what I wanted to eat, I had traveled the world. I had worked in the best restaurants, so I knew how to eat well. I just didn't know how to cook it. That was my main concern. Um, so it would take two hours, cost me $75 per meal. And it was really wasteful as a journey. And at one point I said, well, I'm sure there is a better way to consume food to solve my problem that at every day I have to stop everything that I'm doing to focus on my next meal. And uh, then that's when like I had that kind of haha moment and I started to do some research, saw that there was nothing here online in Canada, um, saw that in Europe, um, it was not the same dynamic of market and got inspired by what happened in uh, Europe, but it was all brick and mortar at that time. So I decided to launch something in e-commerce, even if I was not an expert in e-commerce at that moment, but I figured that I would learn along the way. So yeah, <laughs> that's the reason why. Judith, of course, obviously during the pandemic, your business um, you know, took off and it's been so, such, such an interesting time for, for new online businesses, but it's also a very crowded space. You know, We were mentioning earlier, there are a lot of prominent um, businesses in that space here in Montreal. How do you distinguish yourselves, um, both in terms of your product and in terms of just the the space online um, and uh, and the the limited space to market anything online these days. 
Uh-huh. I, I, very good question. And I just want to clarify something. Uh, since our launch in 2014, we were able to triple cook its size every year. And it was a mix of investment in marketing, which is really my passion, and um, acqui- acquisition as well. So we did two uh, acquisitions with the acquisition of uh, Cristo and Miss Fresh, who helped us build Cook It. Um, but yes, it's um, it, like I've said, in, in direct consumers, we have uh, co- competitors, we have two direct competitors. Uh, one thing that we've done is that we focus very locally. So we've built, our, our, our goal was we have less money than all of those competitors, a lot less money. Um, so let's try to be as close to our consumers. Let's be as close uh, to, to really build like kind of the, that fortress here. So Cook It was born on social media. And that's one thing that I really love is that you can talk and reach customers that way. Um, and our, our, at one point we realized that the, the way we we're going to win, and I want to say it in like Guillemet, is that um, if every box is the best that it can be against anything else, then that's how we'll win. And I think that's one thing that paid off um, very much for us. Um, there's a sondage that came out uh, by Leger Marketing in uh, two months ago that ranked Cook It as the fifth best player in online experience experience in uh, e-commerce in Canada. That's before players than Amazon. It's before players like SAQ and it's way before any other food competitors. So I've had problems explaining what was customer experience previously, but when we looked at Leger and it was very clear, it's 22 different factors on how consumers rate their experience with a brand, uh, starting with online advertising, the website, the image de marque, uh, the, the experience that you have on social media, the experience that you have with customer service, the, the box by itself. The, so everything like that, the consumer, when they're trying to make a decision, an enlightening decision, even if there's big Players, like you can find anyone here now on the internet and the consumers are smarter than we think and they actually um, measure those things. So I think a lot of our success has come from building that fortress in, in, in Quebec, being closer to consumers, being present on social media, on influencers, our uh, affiliate program, which I think is the best in Quebec. Um, and for those who don't know what is an affiliate program is that we, um, we have um, an affiliate program where we have ambassadors who uh, become broadcasters of Cook It and they are um, high they have high audiences in um, on social media and that helps us build brand awareness for the the brand so i think it's a a mix of that marketing of proximity of customer experience and uh focused on the marketing that has helped us a lot uh build our uh, our customer base here in quebec so we'll maybe touch on a, a little more delicate subject, and, and this is, I think, a lot of the, uh, the the online acquisitions during COVID, and whether that is food products or whether that is an ongoing uh, consumer product, has been packaging. 
Uh, a lot of packaging uh, goes into the food packaging. I mean, uh, funny enough, my wife ordered something the other day that was about uh, the size of a shoebox, and it came in a box big enough to put a a calf in. So you know, there, there there's been a lot of complaints about the, and the packaging. How do you how do you see this, and, and and do you see this as a way to possibly differentiate yourself in in how you proceed to continue to move forward in this business? It's mm-hmm. a very good question. Uh, you know, I always keep referring to the beginning of Cook It in 2014. Back then, at that moment, 2015 and 2016, I call it kind of like the black period for the meal kit because it had it, it's it's been kind of demonized at that moment for those two years. What we knew in the business, being a subscriber with Cook It, um, helps you reduce your food waste. So. Here in Canada, 30% of the food that has been produced, either perishable or non-perishable, goes to waste. It's either uh, in your fridge, it's on in the traditional model of uh, trying of uh, procurement of food, so in grocery stores or things like that, 30% is huge. And I like I've been to a metro store lately and my mushrooms were coming in packaging and things like that. And my sour cream has been coming in packaging as well. Unfortunately, there's no like uh, uh, we cannot uh, deplace it by air yet. So at that moment, 2015, 2016, we knew that we were kind of solving food waste, which was a huge problem, but we're too shy to say it because all of those figures being pointed at us saying that uh, we had a food packaging problem and don't get me wrong we do have a food packaging problem we do have an e-commerce packaging problem just a way of to buy to, to buy things on internet so in 2018 we launched the first uh kit durable which was a completely a hundred percent sustainable box which uh we created in a closed circuit. So we would send the food by uh, kids, delivered to our doorsteps of the customers. Then they would replace the Tupperware's bag in the bag and the next week we would pick up it over. And at that point, we thought that we had completely uh, found a solution. But the funny thing enough is that the consumers were not ready. They wanted it. Um, you saw that preoccupation online, but it was offered at the same uh, in the same uh, conversion flow on our website. And most of the consumers, and when I say most, I want to say 99% of our consumers still chose the uh, the normal kit. And that has to do with innovation and change. It's okay to change, but there's not there can be so so many changes at the same time. But that journey showed us that we can do some innovations in that, um, and we've decided to hire a lead packaging and invest three hundred thousand dollars in innovation to find a solution in the next year. Um, but but we're we. I have to be honest, we haven't found a solution that is scalable, that is good for all of the parties uh, yet, but we are, we do want to work on it. And excellent question. It could be a huge uh, differentiator towards our, uh, our other competitors, either in our segment or even in all food segments. So the last question I have is, 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 is as we come out of COVID, um, what do you think the momentum is going to be? Where do you see yourself gaining? I mean, people are going to hopefully go back to restaurants. People are going to do uh, go back to some routine. Where do you find yourself fitting in? And where do you think the greatest momentum for your business is going to come from? 
Mm -hmm. I think that change of consumer trends for online purchasing will stay pretty much the same. I don't see like if you didn't buy jeans before the pandemic uh, online, during the pandemic, you certainly learned how to do that. And I think that once you change, you can hardly go back. So that's, that's, that's that. So for us, um, it's, it's, it's a great movement for us. Um, hopefully, I can't wait to go back to restaurants and eating with friends. But if you would have asked me the question 18 months ago, Judith, do you think if there's a pandemic and all the people on the planet have all the time at home with their hands and free and the only thing that's available for them to do is do grocery and come back home, do you think they'll use a meal kit? I would have been very skeptic at that moment because for me, what I, how I saw cooking was like as a time saver. You have all those many different things that you want to do in life and you're always so busy that you don't really have time to do that grocery. And that's kind of our segment and what we were kind of selling to the consumers. But eventually, so I can hardly predict the future. I know that we'll invest more in marketing, that we'll invest more in different products, that will penetrate different markets. That I know for sure. But where the consumers will be in 18 months, I don't know. And I think what that's one of the strengths at Cookit is that we listen a lot to our consumers and to media and to all of the people that there. So we'll keep innovating to uh, be the best fit for our customers. Judith Fetzer from Cook It will have her one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur coming up in a few minutes. Love the the passion and the, the adaptability and the attention to detail. So her advice on the way. Let's chat with Patrick Sullivan, trustee at FL about maintaining uh, a good relationship with your bank. Welcome back, Patrick. Dan, Mike, always a pleasure. The great thing about Canadian banks is that they've been pretty cooperative this year, I have to say. I'm not sure if it was a nudging by the federal government or just uh, out of the kindness of their own hearts, but um, maintaining those relationships uh, is something the banks seem to want to do as well. Well, I'd like to say that, yes, the banks have been very tolerant, indeed, because of all the government subsidies that were just poured in. Uh, How do you maintain a good relationship with your bank? It's fairly easy. And and we've been saying this for a long, long time. Communication is the key. Don't hide anything from your banker. Uh, You know, be open because they, they look at numbers. Okay. They, in many cases, they know somewhat about your business, but not necessarily all the ins and outs of your business. Uh, During this pandemic, which is over 12 months now, I mean, a lot of these relationships have tightened up. The bankers are looking down on their clients because the clients have been asking either to increase their lines of credits to support uh, their, 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 their problems during the pandemic. Uh, and obviously, this brings to, you know, the ratios get out of whack. They need more money, but the assets are not necessarily there to support the increase in the line of credit. Uh, you know, people are working at distance. It's harder to get the information. It's harder to get the cash flows. So what, what has come out of this is many, many bankers have now gone to phase two, which is basically... We're going to reopen your credit agreement and we're going to modify certain things in there to allow you to go through this, call it pandemic. Uh, 
And in doing so, what they've created, and this existed you know, even before the pandemic, they will refer back and create what is called a uh, forbearance agreement where basically what, what that entails is that they will allow you to not respect your ratios. They will allow increased lines of credit. They will you know, identify in the forbearance agreement the number of defaults that you have come across in your original financing agreement, outline them. And then what happens is they will also give you a delay. They'll give you a specific time frame in order to you know, recapture, readjust, and come back to your regular credit terms. Originally, you know, if we go before the pandemic, normally these forbearance agreements would run maybe two months, three months. Now I've seen them go as far as 18 months. So that it goes to, to tell you that, I mean, the bankers are very, very tolerant right now. And there's, a, there's the reputational risk, obviously, that they don't want to uh, be faced with in pulling the plug on everybody. Part of the problem, though, I think is, and you touched on it earlier, is is the relationship management with the bank. And, you know, I think a lot of people have learned uh, or have taken the approach with, the, with with their bankers to look at it and go, well, I'm going to beg for forgiveness as opposed to ask for permission. You know, where, where do you see, Pat, the, the relationship and, and coming to terms with, uh, with your discussion with the banker? Is it after the fact, kind of, you know, throwing a Hail Mary, or is this something you should be working on with the bank as you're going through it? I, you know what, it, 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 again, the key is that you have to stay in touch. You have to give the information as much as you can, not hide anything, because when the bankers find out that you're hiding or you're holding back some information, then the reaction is going to be totally different. I mean, they're, they're no longer going to be there to support you. They're going to be there to make sure that they recover their marbles and eventually they may put you out of business. So it's always a question of, I trust my banker that, you know, he's going to help me. And uh, it, it's been going very well in that sense, because we see that a lot of uh, files that normally, you know, trustee work uh, uh, is down considerably uh, in the last 18 months, I would say. And that's because the bankers are being very, very easy on their customers to help them go through this pandemic. Yeah, I think, you know, what, what we're seeing is, you know, being easy on them is, I, I, I'm not sure, is, is always by choice. It may be by necessity at the end of the day, just in order to help everybody get through this environment. But the one thing we are seeing after, you know, pretty much 10 years of a bull market, uh, both in the stock market, low, uh, almost non-existent interest rates, all of a sudden the bankers are really starting to tighten up their credit facilities and their relationships. And where you used to say, yeah, I'll get you the statements when I get them to you. You know, the T's there need to be crossed and the I's are needing to be dotted. And I'm sure Pat, you're seeing a lot more compliance today. Definitely a lot more compliance. Definitely uh, bankers are gonna be tightening up even more because as we get out of all these subsidies, obviously they're gonna start to relook at their portfolios. Uh, they're gonna be coming down on certain clients that have not respected the new conditions that they've been, you know, they've put together. Bear in mind, the interest rates were, are, are still low. Uh, but when you enter into what is called a forbearance agreement, oh, all of a sudden there's a price to pay for that too. Your banker is going to increase your interest rates. Your, and there's going to be fees charged to you because 
all of this is done through their legal departments. So there's an add-on to being, uh, you know, in a forbearance agreement that there's a cost. Patrick Sullivan, trustee at FL. Thanks so much, Patrick. Always a pleasure. And now let's turn to Judith, the head and founder of Cook It and Judith Fetzer, your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur, please. <laughs> My one piece of advice. I think it's, I, I want to address that to um, all the women in the world. It's really to dream big. I think it's my mission in life and in the entrepreneur world is really to, um, to encourage women to dream bigger. Um, so you can see if you, if you, if you can dream it, you can do it. You just have to start and start small, but never keep, uh, never, ne never give up. Judith Fetzer, thanks so much for joining us today on Today's Entrepreneur. Thank you so much. And thank you, Mike. And don't forget, for all the episodes for Today's Entrepreneur for the last, what, 12 years now, go to todaysentrepreneur.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. And we'll see you back here in two weeks. And we'll see you then. Bye. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Good talk.